This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. Which you know good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, I first want to start with a congratulations on two accounts. I know that you had a birthday that just uh, just passed, but also congratulations on the the, the Bears winning. Uh, it's been a while. It doesn't quite hit exactly the same without our guy, Justin Fields, being hurt. So uh, prayers out to him. Yeah. Uh, Justin Fields is the Gibney boys. Those are my sons. The Gibney boys, that's their favorite player. So we're definitely praying for him. But the Bears got a win, so we'll take the it. The Bears did get a win, and that is like a holiday. That's a, that's a big deal, man. Hopefully we get to the point where this doesn't feel like a holiday. But sometimes you got you to gotta take them where you can get them, right? For sure. So 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 we'll take that. The other thing I wanted to do, if you don't mind, Chris, is I kind of wanted to start off with a really, really with just an update about the Israel Hamas war. Again, I want to just kind of give the facts. We're not you know, we gave a little bit of opinion on the last episode. I don't want that particular issue, although it is very big. I don't think it should monopolize everything that the and campaign is doing, because Honestly, the and campaign isn't really we don't talk about international issues all that much anyway. Right. So that's not really our specialty. But we do want to make sure that you know what's going on, that we can talk about it in a way that keeps you informed. So just so you know, we're entering, I think, Chris, like the 20th day of this war. Right. I think 1400 people uh, in Israel have been killed. Five thousand, almost six thousand Palestinians uh, have been killed. And one of the big things I'm watching and have been looking at is that according to a Gaza health ministry spokesman, the healthcare system in Gaza is completely out of service. All right. This was kind of corroborated by uh, CNBC. And they said that hospitals have been warning that they would have to shut down if they didn't receive more fuel to transport what they needed. So apparently Israel kind of defense force has stopped fuel from coming in. I want to be very clear. Israel is saying there actually is fuel in Gaza. It's just all being used by Hamas. Who's right? I don't I don't really know. But that's that's what they're saying at this point. Now, some interesting commentary, though, has come out of the U.N. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres has said that the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the horrific attacks by Hamas. Those horrendous attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. 
So he's saying something very similar to, to, you know, what was being said last week. But here's the interesting part about what he's saying. The horrendous attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. Collective punishment by U.N. standards is a war crime. So by saying what he said, he's saying that there are war crimes going on within this war because of the collective punishment. So that's why it's a loaded, you know, it sounds like a somewhat not simple statement, but it was a short statement, but somewhat of a loaded statement, too. Now, I would imagine uh, Israel would respond by saying, well, you can have a level of collective punishment if it can't be avoided. Right. And that would, I think, be their defense in saying that these actually aren't war crimes. We'll let you be the judge of, 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 of what's really going on there. But after those remarks. An Israel representative to the U.N. has called for the resignation of Guterres because of what what he said. So a a lot going on now. That is the U.N. And you would think of the U.N. as a party within this conversation. Right. Just just let you know where where that stands right now. And there's something else that I think, Chris, that has caused some controversy in Israel is that some of the families of the hostages. So when Hamas comes in, they take hostages, some of those even being American hostages. But some of the families of those hostages are calling for a ceasefire. So that's interesting. That has caused, I think, some controversy within Israel itself. And then when some of these hostages were let go, one of the hostages actually shook the hand of a Hamas operative as she was being released. Now, if we want to know, Chris, where the the U.S. stands on this ceasefire issue, President Biden said on Monday that he would be willing to engage in talks about a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas if the hostages taken by militants were released. So if they released all the hostages at that point, Biden is saying, then we can have a conversation. But until then, there's you know, there's not going to be a conversation about a ceasefire. Now, talks with Hamas about a ceasefire in general and the release of a larger group of hostages. So the the talks about releasing those hostages, not I'm sorry, not talks about the ceasefire, but talks about releasing the hostages. A diplomat is saying are progressing positively. Right. There are some that are being released. And so they continue to have those conversations. But there has not been a complete breakthrough yet. So they haven't come to some sort of agreement. If we want to look at the American people, though, Chris. According to Data for Progress, a poll that they did, 66% of likely voters agree that the U.S. should call for a ceasefire and de-escalation of violence in Gaza and should leverage its close uh, diplomatic relationship with Israel to prevent further violence and civilian deaths. So 66% of likely voters in America think that we should call for a a ceasefire and de-escalation of what's going on in Gaza. Something else I'll mention before uh, passing it over to Chris is that Iran has warned Israel that the Middle East could spiral out of control if it does not stop the strikes on Gaza. So there's an active, not necessarily a threat, but there's active, they're actively saying, hey, this needs to stop or this can get bigger. And we know that if Iran gets into the conversation, the U.S. gets into the in, into it, and this really could become World War III. It's something that I hope we all want to avoid, but that's just some of the dynamics on the ground. Chris, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you gave such a good update, and you know, there's not much there. I mean, I I, I do appreciate you know even the suggestion of talks, 
is a step forward for the White House from last week, having the, the press secretary send that even the mention of, of a ceasefire is, I think, repugnant and disgraceful. So that is a step forward. And I, I just think that the last part that you talked about is the place where, I mean, just a lot of prayer needs to go into this because I think the general disposition of policymakers to really be focused on the next thing really, you know, creates more roads if you're just like gaming it out. This is really unfortunate, but there are more roads that you can imagine to getting into this broader conflict than not getting into the broader conflict. Because if you're Israel, what are you going to do in the face of what you see as a major, major once in a generation terrorist attack. But if if you're the rest of the Arab world, especially the nation in the Middle East, Iran in particular, what are you going to do when you see a large percentage of somewhere between, you know, I've seen as low as 25%, but I've also heard as much as 40% of the housing stock in Gaza destroyed, which there's not a lot of press in there right now, but it's not hard to imagine. I think for like Americans, you got to think about like Gaza is about the size of Philadelphia. So imagine that like Philly was just getting bombed for two weeks. It can take a lot of damage. And we've already seen Iranian proxies to the West firing missiles toward Israel, firing missiles toward and drones toward U.S. assets in the region. And I'm always, as a sort of a student of of history and, and war history in particular, So many of the great conflicts, I I think all of the great conflicts in relatively modern world history really jump off because of like a mistake, (laughs) you know, like somebody doing something that the state that they were in didn't necessarily endorse, but things were just so tense and so close. All it takes is one field commander to hear the wrong thing, fire on the wrong group blow up something that shouldn't get blowed up and here you go. Uh, and so we should just be in a lot of prayer because I don't think a a world war or even a, a broader sort of conflict in the Middle East is anything that any of us want for the world, for the region, or for the United States. Yeah, I, I agree. That's something that I think should be avoided, maybe not at all costs, but should be avoided uh, in, in any reasonable way that that we can avoid it. And in this instance, with the U.S. and its influence, the influence that other people have, I think that can be done, right? I, I think that can be handled in, in a more responsible way. So we'll have to see. I do want to mention that there was a lot of conversations about a hospital that was bombed. Initially, it was said that a hospital in Gaza that was bombed. Initially, it was said that the hospital was bombed by Israel. It's looking like that wasn't the case. So I think we do need to put that out there. Something else that happened is around the world, even here in Atlanta, in other places in the U.S., there were a lot of actually pro-Palestinian protests that, that were out. I know London, I want to say, had a really big one. And so there are a few pretty big demonstrations in that regard. So that's something else that, that that's going on and that we just have to you know, keep playing, paying close attention to, to what's happening here. A lot going on, a lot that we uh, need to know about. And again, the world in general has has a stake in, in in what's happening here. So, just want to give you all that update. Make sure that uh, that we keep you updated on what's going on as we tend to do. But as always, I want to give a shout out to all our patrons and supporters for for supporting us and what we do and how we do it. If you are watching this on YouTube. 
I would ask that you like and subscribe. We want to grow our YouTube audience, which is really small compared to the audience that we get on iTunes and 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 some of the other podcast forums. So we want to grow that. So check it out. If not, if you just like watching, you know, listening to the way that you do, just send a link to somebody else that may watch YouTube or something more than that. We do want to grow that out so we can reach more people. Thank all of you that give to what we do. As you know, you can always go on uh, patreon.com slash church politics and you will actually get premium episodes where me and Chris talk about other things that we may not mention on the episodes that that you hear if you're not uh, a patron. So check that out. As always, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. And I want to start by reading from the word. I'll go to 1 John 3, verses 17 through 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Let us love with actions and in truth. First John three is always good for me, Chris, because I think it really adds substance to what the gospel says love is. Love can be, you know, love is one of those terms that everybody can add in what they want it to be. For some people, love is just affirmation. From others, love is just passion or sex or anything like that. But I think First John three makes it very clear what the gospel conception of love is. It's self-sacrifice, it's actions, it's truth, and so on. And and to say, if you have material possessions and you see someone in need and you have no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? We all need to take that seriously. And I think it even should be reflected in the policy that we support. Okay, now I'm not going to tell you that you have to support a certain policy or you are not Christ-like, or you you are not at all loving, but I think it should be a consideration in what you think, in what you support, and what you advocate for. And I think there's a few bills that we can think through how this impacts the people around us and how it impacts people of need. 
The United States addresses agriculture and food policy through a number of different programs. This includes nutrition assistance, crop insurance, commodity support, and conservation. Much of the framework for agriculture and food policy is set through, Chris, a legislative process that occurs every five years. All right. So every five years, they kind of set the policy for the things that I just named. The current farm law or the Agriculture Improvement Act of 2018, uh, also known as the 2018 Farm Act, was signed on December 20th, 2018, and will remain in force if you're doing your math through 2023. Although some provisions, just a few provisions may last beyond 2023. So accordingly, the farm bill is up for renewal this year because it ends this year. And so for some time, Congress has been negotiating, talking through what this new farm bill should look like. I don't think the farm bill is at risk of not passing. I think the question is what's in the farm bill that passes. OK, now what the farm bill does, just to be a little more specific, is it allocates funding for the emergency food assistance program. T-E-F-A-P, and the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP. I'm sure you've heard of SNAP before, especially if you listen to this podcast, but because we talked about SNAP. SNAP helps bridge the food gap for millions of families and individuals facing hunger across the country. So when you talk about food, stamps, feeding children, all that stuff, those are what we call today SNAP benefits, okay? Now, a group that I've been working with a little bit uh, personally, is the Feeding America group, which they have a faith advisory council. But Feeding America does a really good job with this stuff and works in collaboration with stakeholders and lawmakers to ensure strong investments in federal nutrition programs as we really just call on Congress to reauthorize a farm bill. Again, not just a farm bill, but a strong farm bill. Not just passing it just to say we passed it, but making sure that it has in it what people need to have good nutrition, to make sure that we get through this really tough time when, as you know, you know, like I do, Chris, that food prices are, are rising. And so while some of us are blessed enough to pay those rising costs, not everybody is. All right. Nearly 34 million people, including more than 9 million children, face hunger in the United States. Let me give you that number again, Chris, in case you did not hear it. 34 million people, including 9 million children, face hunger in the United States. My mom used to say, you know, there's nothing worse than seeing a hungry child. That is heartbreaking. And I believe that the United States is in a position where we don't we shouldn't have to see that in the in this in this country where all children can be put in a position where they are, are taken care of when it comes to food. All right. Now, let me talk a little bit about what this farm bill does. It, it, it actually helped the Feeding American Network through the farm bill provide over one billion meals in fiscal year 2022. One billion meals. That's a lot. SNAP provides monthly food benefits for about 40 million people via the EBT card, which is the new kind of food stamps, right? 40 million people. In 2021, the Commodity Supplemental Food Program provided nutritious food boxes to about 
600,000, over 600,000 older adults with low incomes. And let me tell you this, and I learned this through going to, you know, during politics, we used to go to senior homes and things of that nature. There are a lot of older people who, when the end of the month comes, have a hard time feeding themselves. You should know that there are a lot of seniors in America, and I've heard terrible stories of what they have to eat and what they do, but they have a hard time feeding themselves. In addition to children, that should not be the case. All right. So what, what, what I'm what I'm saying that people should do is consider writing a letter to your congressperson, writing a letter to your senator saying we need a strong farm bill because there are there is a Republican idea proposal floating around here that would cut about 50 billion dollars out of the farm bill including large chunks you know including large chunks from the inflation reduction act all right that need not happen we need to have our priorities straight and this should be one of the priorities that we have as a people especially for christians in the united states go ahead and speak on it though chris yeah so this is something that's a little bit Near to my heart, when I ran for Congress, AG was one of the committees that I wanted to serve on. And I remember talking about this in a community forum. And somebody asked the obvious question, you know, if you're running in a congressional district that is primarily, I mean, not even primarily, I guess we're a few rural areas, but I mean, it's it's mostly a city suburban congressional district. Why would you be interested in the agriculture committee? And this is the reason why is because a lot of these nutrition programs, anti-hunger programs, which I consider also anti-poverty and pro-family, which are big concerns for me in terms of policy, get dealt with through this agriculture committee. And, and, and probably the biggest thing, right, is the farm bill every five years. And the holdup, just so folks know, on this farm bill is that there are a group of Republicans, I don't want to say the Republicans and create a big category. Uh, But there are several Republicans, leading Republicans and influential Republicans who specifically not just want to take stuff out of the bill. They specifically want to cut SNAP benefits. And they also want to cut land conservation programs that have, that were passed in that Inflation Reduction Act uh, that expanded these land conservation programs, which basically subsidized farmers to upgrade their lands, make them more resilient against climate catastrophe, but also more climate friendly. So folks want to cut those two programs, but the proposal does not cut everything. It actually increases, again, these risk coverage programs. I think that it's just important as we listen to the people who are making these proposals to make sure that we highlight, even how you talked about in 1 John chapter 3, that we highlight the truth part. Because I think when you have folks who style themselves as sort of small government conservatives, and even that is the kind of like the the narrative that folks are putting forth to say that this is why we have to make these cuts because we have to reduce the size of the government and all those types of things. But the the Department of Agriculture has over 150 programs that are providing direct subsidies to farmers right now. And most of these subsidies are actually not going to folks who produce livestock and fruit and vegetables. They're going to folks who produce corn and soy, cotton, wheat, and rice. And these folks are not going after those subsidies. 
I also want folks who are talking about SNAP, you know, I, I heard even one member of the Agriculture Committee say directly that his concern with SNAP is that he wants to make sure that is not going, not that it's not going, he said he wants to make sure that it's going to people who really need it. While we're thinking about making sure that it's going to folks who really need it, we have to remember that all those good things, SNAPs and the, the supplemental nutrition program that sends out the food box and all those things, those are great things that happen through the farm, farm bill. But the three biggest programs in the farm bill are crop insurance, risk coverage, which is basically, you know, where if the prices that farmers are getting for their crops fall beneath a certain point, then they get a supplement for that. And then there's a price loss coverage, which basically covers that same dynamic in another way. Those are the three big farm programs in the farm bill. And the largest 10% of farms get 60% of those subsidies. So when we talk about making sure that stuff is going to folks who need it, we got to look at that. And then the biggest one, the, the commodity subsidies, which is the one that is holding up the bill right now because folks want to expand that cut snap and cut the conservation programs. 78% of those payments, Justin, since they've been made, I think in the early 90s, 78% of those payments have gone to the top 10% of by net worth of farmers and agribusinesses. And that's because there's not, there's actually a reverse means test involved in this because that the payments actually are made based on the acreage and the production. So you have to have more land and more product in order to get the higher rates of subsidy. So there's a reverse mean test here. And then, you know, when we talk about family-centered policy and some of the folks who are on the agriculture committee and other Republicans in Congress who might be wanting to hold up this bill, also style themselves as concerned about family, wanting to ensure that families are growing and prospering. You don't do that by by taking food out of the mouths of of children who are hungry. And one of the things that I really think needs to be reshaped in this farm bill discussion is that the sometimes when the when the foundation is bad, it just makes for a difficult relationship all the way through. And I feel like this is one of those things because the the farm bill and the food stamps bill were not always together, right? So the farm bill, I mean, some sort of agriculture supplement has been going out of the United States government since like 1933. It wasn't until 1973. So the, the food stamp act, the most modern one that most closely reflects what we currently have, that's 1964. President Johnson uh, signs that. It's not until 1973 where now the agriculture su subsidies have gotten a lot bigger. They've gotten a lot more consistent. And folks are looking and saying that there are fewer and fewer congressional districts that are actually dependent upon agriculture and agribusiness. And so putting together the voting coalition to keep passing a farm bill is getting more and more difficult. And so the thought comes up in some policy circles that we need to basically create a backdoor subsidy to the food industry that urban Congress folks can get behind. And so that's in 1973 where you get the first sort of modern version of the farm bill, where you bring a massive expansion of the Food Stamps Act into the farm bill. And that's the first time that is required that all the states have it. Just a lot of expansion of the Food Stamps Act into the farm bill. But the thought behind it 
wasn't necessarily nutrition and anti-poverty. It was more so a backdoor subsidy and grow the voting coalition. So you really have two by force. I mean, it's kind of like a shotgun marriage. Like you, you kind of have like two groups of advocates, folks who are really pushing for nutrition, anti-poverty, pro-family, all those types of things, sort of being forced to push with the same legislative vehicle that is used in a lot of ways to supplement a lot of corporate activity. Uh, I, I didn't even talk about the billions of dollars that go to large insurance companies based on the, the supplemental insurance coverage. There's, there's just a lot of moving pieces here. And while all that stuff is going on, I think it's the height of hypocrisy to be trying to expand those pieces that go more to special interest, wealthier folks. And this, this is not against farmers. You know, if, if you're a farmer out there, you know, get yours. But I do think that there's a, a fair amount of hypocrisy to be expanding that one piece at the same time insisting that the most democratized sort of supplements to farmers that hit more farmers across the board and the SNAP uh, benefits that actually go to help feed hungry folks all over the country. That's hypocritical then to, to actually be trying to do both of those things in one fell swoop. Got you. So Chris has given us kind of a, a history of the legislative process and the sausage that is made through that. And I would imagine even a lot of the people that are even some of the Democrats, even some of the people who are feeding America might agree with what you're saying, which leaves us with the practical issue of who runs Congress, what's actually going to get passed. And if we want these SNAP benefits, if we want these other benefits, if we want hungry people to be fed, there's going to have to be some compromise. Yeah. Even for myself, you could point out some things in this bill and say, you know, I wish that wasn't the case. However, we also know without some of these extras, there may not be anything that's passed at all. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's why I say I love the history. I love the you know, you guys should understand that when policy, especially policy that's this big is made, it comes with it comes with compromises. It comes with give and take. And there's, there's certain things we wish that weren't there. At the end of the day, if we're trying to feed the people who aren't going to get fed unless this is passed, there has to be that level of negotiation. There has to be a realistic look of who's actually in control, who's going to bring it to the table and and those things. But I'm with you, Chris. It doesn't make sense for folks to try to cut the SNAP benefits and things like that and then enlarge some of these other areas. I don't like that, but I do, from a practical standpoint, say we got to get these people fed and yeah. Looking at who's looking at who's running Congress. If there is, there's, is there anybody running Congress right? Not now? yet. They got to vote in like forty right. minutes. <laughs> right. We're, we're gonna we're gonna get to that in a, in a second too. But this is you know the farm bill is something that needs to get through because there are a lot of people depending on it. And yeah. In fact, you know the farm bill, a lot of churches interact with to some extent mm-hmm. because this is where you see you know. Their pantries, their food yeah. pantries are interacting with this to make sure that we're feeding. And I, and shout out to Greater Pine Grove Baptist Church. We do a lot. Our food pantry goes hard, does a lot of work just getting people fed. Yeah. And so this, hey, this is the reality of politics. And I think that's what Chris is giving you. This is the reality of politics. We want you to know the whole thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad Chris provided that background because you need to know the whole thing. And what I would say and, and this is the decision for everybody who's listening to make as a citizen yourself, is that to me, based on the dynamics right now, 
we need to get this done because a lot of people, churches and hungry people are depending on that to make sure that we don't have more hungry children out there. But go yeah. ahead. Chris. And, and I, I, I think that the history should equip us to make that argument. Right. Because if you're living in a Republican district and your member of Congress is saying, I can't support this farm bill because we need more means test on SNAP. We should be ready to say, well, we don't have any means test on the the agriculture insurance subsidy. So if we're going to mean test something, means test the agriculture insurance subsidy and leave the SNAP program alone, right? The argument that folks are making about why they are holding up this bill are completely disingenuous. Right. They're, they're intellectually, there's some intellectually dishonest arguments being made. Yeah. We should be equipped to say, you know, the very least we can do is make sure that these parts of the program that are profound benefits to people with profound needs get through. Because there's a lot of stuff in it that don't fit that category. Most of the arguments, I would say all of the arguments that I have heard from folks who are trying to hold up the bill because we need to shrink the size of it and shrink the size of the government and make sure that, you know, folks who, you know, people are not living high on the hog off the government dime and protect the taxpayers. No, 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 no. Sirs, madams, if that were the goal, this bill would look very, very, very different. But yeah, Chris, I'm with you. Welcome to the world of legislation. This stuff, this needs to get passed, especially when we're talking about these SNAP benefits. People depend on it. Again, I want to shout out to I want to give a shout out to all the church food pantries. I know we're getting ready for Thanksgiving. I know a lot of people are going to be depending on those. The church gets a bad rap, rap for a lot of things, but there are very few entities that feed as many people as churches do and are doing it all time, whether they get the credit or not. But I want to let y'all know that it does glorify God according to First John 3. So I appreciate y'all. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Chris, I'm going to say something and I want you to brace yourself because I'm going to say something that is going to be a major surprise to you. But I didn't want to. And I hate to do this on the show without giving you fair warning. But I'm going to say something that may just shock you. And if you have to leave and take some time to yourself, that's okay with me. All right. According to Gallup, a poll that Gallup did, the United States Congress, be be ready for this, Chris. United States Congress has a 17 percent job approval rating. No, that's a surprise to you, Chris. A 17 percent job approval rating, which means if you're doing the math and we've been doing a lot of math today, it means that 83 percent of Americans disapprove of the job that Congress is doing. Now, with that in mind, with that background in mind, the House of Representatives is in its third week without a speaker. Now, you guys should know the speaker of the House is the person who basically runs Congress. It's the person from the majority party who's leading them and making sure the legislation gets where it needs to go and all that stuff. We do not have a Speaker of the House, which means we do not have a functional House of Representatives. That's a big deal. Since getting rid of Congressman McCarthy, 
the House Republican Conference has nominated three replacements. All of them withdrew their candidacies after they were unable to secure the votes needed to win. So we have a situation where one of the parties cannot agree on who should actually run their party. Nobody is coming together and saying, hey, let's make this happen. Now, there is a vote coming up as we speak. And so by the time you hear this, there may be changes that I hope there's a change. I hope somebody comes here. But that's that still be have been three weeks where we had nobody, which means nothing's getting done. Things aren't moving in the way that they need to move. Representative Mike Flood, who is a Republican from Nebraska, said this. He said the American people need us to govern. The soldiers, the sailors, the Marines that are potentially in harm's way right now in the Middle East. They've got a lot bigger things to worry about than sitting in a room trying to pick one capable Republican over another. People want us to pick and they want us to move on. And when I was in Nebraska on Sunday, I could see the anxiety in some of my constituents faces. People that I've known for a long time. They're just nervous. They're worried. He then compared the process for trying to vote for a speaker as herding cats on methamphetamine. Chris, when we look at the job approval rating of Congress, which is worse than any other governmental group, I believe, you would think that folks would want to correct the perception. You would think that folks would want to say, yeah, I know we have a bad rap, but we can do this right. Instead, they're really just confirming what people already thought. And we've talked about on this show before how even before all this stuff happened, all the things that Congress is supposed to be doing that they're just not doing. And yes, this right now is happening with the the, the Republicans, but the Democrats just got out of power and we don't have. Uh, comprehensive immigration reform. We don't have a solution to many of the things we need solutions to, because guess what? Where Congress is supposed to be the one presenting legislation and and making those hard decisions, people in Congress have decided that they don't want to make hard decisions. And so they leave those decisions up to the president and they leave those decisions up to the, the Supreme Court and the judicial branch. For a long time, they have not been doing many of the things that they're supposed to be doing. And for a long time, people have been saying we're not approving of the job that's being done. So, Chris, I don't know. I don't know where it goes from here. I don't think people are embarrassed enough because they're certainly not doing what they need to do. I think there's some narcissism at play. I think there's a lot of things at play here. But what I, I know for sure is that this is not serving the American people. And we've got too much going on to be having this back and forth for a third week. Go ahead, Chris. So Congress has a 17 percent approval rating, but a 98 percent reelection rate. When you put those two numbers side by side, that is a sign of a not functioning democracy. If 17 percent is the approval rating and 98 percent is the reelect rate, something's broken in the system. I think there are a lot of things broken in the system that are not functioning. I think that in a lot of ways and in a lot of cases, breaking stuff is what leadership looks like. And I can't convince myself that not having a speaker is the biggest disaster 
that can be happening in Congress right now. When I think about the kinds of things that Congress is probably going to get right to doing when they get a speaker, like spending all types of money and global conflicts that we really don't have, you know, maybe making the homeland less secure by shipping off a lot of weapons and supplies, you know, maybe passing a farm bill that cuts SNAP significantly and reduces food to to folks who need it. If that's what the speakership is going to give way to, I don't mind if we don't have a speaker. I'm way more interested in like getting an actual functioning government than having having a government that moves but constantly in the wrong direction. So while I I said this on the when when, when Matt Gaze first submitted his motion to vacate and they put McCarthy out of the speakership, we probably, Matt Gates and I probably are not agreed on a large majority of policy objectives. But I, I, I would hope that a lot of people who do have policy objectives that may be closer to my own might, from this experience, appreciate the power that they have as members of Congress, especially in this closely divided Congress, and don't just sit back. I mean, nobody did this, Justin, when they when they allowed the child tax credit to expire. And you talked about those 9 million children who are in hunger right now. Well, we cut child poverty by 50% with that tax credit. We allowed it to expire, and nobody thought that was important enough to go all out and just, you know, not allow anything else to happen until we take care of this issue. I think that more members of Congress need to be held more accountable for the power that they actually do have instead of having this kind of like feigned impotence that they can't do anything about these issues that are really, really important. I don't agree on the issues that caused this particular shakeup, but I can't necessarily say that I'm mad that a member of a closely divided Congress uses power. I mean, because really what you have is you almost have like two parties inside the Republican Party and somebody's got to put together a coalition government. Our two party system doesn't even allow people to think about, you know, getting together with Democrats to do that. But if we look globally and even look back into American history, having more than two parties is not the worst thing in the world pushing the limits with things that are important. Maybe it's just my kind of like organizer, rabble-rousing advocate part of me. But I'm like, you know, if if stuff is important, you got to go for it and try to get things to, to be different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the speaker issue, dilemma, debacle, what it does say is that it's just a sign of the dysfunction, right? Mm-hmm. Like it shows you the dysfunction, whether or not they would be doing what they're supposed to do right now anyway, I think is, is a is a big question. Would they be moving in a positive direction or would we still get this net negative that we seem to be getting uh, for, for quite a bit? So I, I think you bring up a, a real issue, but I think we're being unfair to them on one point. One thing that I believe Congress people have gotten better at and do quite well is selling wolf tickets on social media or so nothing else. Oh, yeah. We, we, we can see folks on social media talking trash, going back and forth, not creating policy necessarily, but at least entertaining people who want to see 
a bunch of talk instead of actually getting the work done. So maybe that's one thing that we can point out that is actually being done. A lot of time on X and other social media platforms. Yes. Unfortunately, they are good at that. I guess in the last few weeks, that's all they you know can do because they can't do anything except for vote for a speaker right, right now. So, you know, I, ho- I kind of hope that they resolve, that they get a speaker, but not not just to go back to business as usual. Right. That would be really sad, even though, you know, as you said, they're going to be voting soon here and they may just fit, find out how to get back to business as usual. So we shall see. Well, as always, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you, Chris. Pleasure to speak to this audience. We appreciate all the support. If you get a chance, go out and, you know, sell somebody at your church, sell somebody in one of your little, you know, ministry groups uh, about the Church Politics Podcast, because that's how we've been spreading the word. Uh, and as always, in camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. Well, I'll let you. Take care. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.